Continuing Education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Welcome, everyone. We are joined tonight by two outstanding guests, Dr. Lenny Feldman and Dr. Carrie Hertzke. Repeat customers to the things we do for no reason in pediatric show on the Cribsiders. They're our first return duo, uh, and we're very excited to have them. Uh, we're also here with our phenomenal producer, Dr. Nicholas Lee. Nick, how's it going, man? How's COVID life? It's going great. Got my second vaccine shot and uh, oh. took a 12-hour nap and feel great. Wow, awesome. amazing. I, it, it feels like impervious to COVID. Are you going to start doing some international travel and like go out to the nightclubs now? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> smart. Uh, smart. Um, Nick, you've been a producer on a couple shows. We're so excited to have you help produce this episode. Um, before we kind of go through the motions, uh, What's new? What's um? You got a picture of the week for us? You got any anything to share? What's uh? What's going on? Yeah. So while I'm not doing all my international travel and nightclubbing, uh, instead sure. I am sitting at home. I'm reading Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight Archive books, which are a great series, Ooh. and also uh, check out The Expanse on Amazon Prime, which are both ways to get outside of Earth, um, which is sorely needed right now. I think. Nice. You I've know, heard I did, good things about I, The Expanse. Out of this world. I just got the Mistborn series for Christmas. Oh. Oh yes, and I remember Chris before uh, before we knew each other that on one of Adam Rodman's tweets we had talked about the expanse. And you told me not to spoil it for you, and I didn't. Back <laughs> Thank then. you. Thank you. You're a gem, a real mensch. That's uh, <laughs> that's great. And so we're very excited to have you, Nick, and we're excited to dive into the content of the show and talk about all these great things we do for no reason. But before we do that, Chris. Yeah. What do we do on the show, Jordan? Remind us what we do on the show. Uh, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Nick, who did we have today? We have some amazing guests for you that you should know, but we're going to give a lovely introduction anyway. So we first we have Dr. Leonard Lenny Feldman. He's an associate professor in internal medicine and pediatrics and a hospitalist in the Division of General Internal Medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for over 15 years. He received his undergraduate degree at Brown University and his medical degree from the University of Maryland School of Medicine. He completed his combined internal medicine pediatrics residency at the University of North Carolina, where he served as a chief resident for the internal medicine residency. He is the founder and program director of the Johns Hopkins Combined Internal Medicine Pediatrics Urban Health Residency and the Osler Urban Health Internal Medicine Primary Care Track. He is also an associate program director for the Osler Internal Medicine Residency. Lenny has focused his research on urban health, resident education, online education, and perhaps most importantly for us, high value care. Nice. We also have Dr. Carrie Hertzke, who is an assistant professor in internal medicine and pediatrics at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. She is the associate vice chair for clinical affairs in the Department of Medicine, director of clinical operations for the hospitalist program at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. She earned her MD from Virginia Commonwealth University Medical College of Virginia. 
She completed her residency at the Duke University School of Medicine. Dr. Hertzke's research interests include quality improvement, infectious diseases, notably infection control, and resident and student education. Whew. We had a fantastic conversation. We had a bunch of topics, including blood cultures, whether we should get them drawn in patients with pneumonia or cellulitis, whether we should check abdominal radiographs to diagnose constipation and a bunch of other little pearls. So hope you guys enjoy it. Great episode, guys. Lots of pearls. Enjoy it without further ado. Let's get to it. All right, guys, welcome back to the show. We have Dr. Feldman and Dr. Hertzke with Things We Do For No Reason. Welcome back. Number two. Things We Do For No yeah. Reason, number two. This is pretty <laughs> exciting. We haven't had um, that many repeat uh, guests yet. Well, thank so you. We're excited to have you. Back. We're very excited. Oh, one. One, one. Um, we we're did excited. have one. Um, yeah. yeah. So you're, you're our second repeat. That's still important. <laughs> <laughs> you're still second best. You're, you're our first duo Yes. Repeat. Ooh. So that you can put it's on quite your an honor. Uh, you can put that on your resume. Yeah. yeah um, right on the CV right now. That's yeah. right. I know that you guys have both been here. So you're all uh, uh, Cripsiders, Curbsiders pros. But for guests that maybe haven't heard some of the past episodes, can we uh, get a one liner from each of you? And is it okay if we do it by first name since we're informal and fun and casual here? Sure. Great. Um, so, Carrie, uh, if it's okay, can we start with you? Can you can I give reminders of who, who you are to have an introduction to our listeners? Sure. I am uh, older than I look, a mother of three, who is a med piece physician at Johns Hopkins and administrator as well. And uh, Lenny, how about you? What's your, what's your one-liner for our guests? Uh, so I am also a physician at Johns Hopkins. I'm a 47-year-old husband to a fantastic wife and a father to a ridiculous two-year-old whose favorite things to do are turn on and off lights with brooms and horses and anything he can get his hands on. Nice. I know where he gets the light switching thing from. Um, you know, as part of uh, uh, as part of the process of getting to know everyone, we love asking some get to know you questions. Can you tell us one of the the best advice that you've ever received as a learner, as a teacher, or at some point in your career? Uh, yeah. So two pieces of advice I think are helpful. One is if everything matters, then nothing matters, and that's been really uh, helpful for me to remember when I've been doing virtual school and COVID. And I think for a lot of us uh, this last year, that's been helpful. Uh, and it does seem to be true. If you try to do everything, it's hard to do everything. And then another one I really like is clear is kind and unclear is unkind. And I think about that when I think about giving hard feedback or telling people things that they don't want to hear, that it encourages me to do it in a kind way, but to to not hold back in telling you folks. And, and you uh, hopefully won't have uh, unkind, but you might have clear instructions for me during this podcast. So feel free. See, I've set the stage for you. This is great. I like that a lot. Yeah, those are fantastic. Can I yeah. just add in one more too? Of course. Uh, I, I mean, the one I want to add in is that people should feel free also to ask for feedback. They should ask for feedback. As a learner, don't wait for the attending to, to give you the feedback, to set up the time to do it, to do those sorts of things. Be proactive about it. I know when residents ask me for feedback, it goes so much better than when I have to remember to do it, even though I really try to get it done on a regular basis. It's much better when they ask. I agree. I also think I give better feedback after someone requested it than when it's Justin inspired. I think it makes it much easier to be like, oh, you want feedback here. I'll give you real things as opposed to 
Yeah, you wash your hands and keep reading. You're doing great. Yeah, <laughs> hang, hang in there. You just um, need to read more. Yeah, exactly. So bad. Yeah. It's the worst thing ever. Yeah. All right, so we have a lot yeah. of great content yeah. for today. So let's dive in. And we have our first case at uh, Cashlet Children's Hospital. It's a four-year-old. We didn't name the four-year-old, so we're just going to name him Chris. Uh, four-year-old Chris was previously healthy, fully immunized boy. He came to the emergency department, has three days of cough, fever, dyspnea, poor PO intake. In the emergency department, he's febrile. He has a fever of 102, heart rate at 120, respiratory rate of 30. His O2 sat is 86%. On exam, he has dry mucous membranes, decreased breath sounds in the right lung field. Chest x-ray shows a right lower lobe opacification. Our patient has community-acquired pneumonia, kind of a slam-dunk community-acquired pneumonia. Is being admitted due to the hypoxemia and some dehydration. In the emergency department, a blood culture was obtained, and uh, they started treatment with ampicillin. The following morning, he's afebrile. He's improving. He's no longer hypoxemic. He looks great, but the blood culture grows gram-positive cot size. So he's now has gram-positive bacteremia. Another blood culture was performed. He switched to vancomycin to cover for MRSA the next day. Penicillin susceptible strep pneumo is ultimately confirmed from the original culture. And he's discharged home on high-dose amoxicillin. So this guy had a somewhat complicated hospital course where he was switched over to vancomycin. This is a long intro, but all this to say, help us out. When we have a patient coming in with presumed community-acquired pneumonia, what's the diagnostic workup that's necessary? Why might someone think a blood culture is, is helpful? Well, uh, it's almost case reportable that this patient had a helpful uh, positive blood culture. And I'll talk to you about why. Um, it is really uncommon in kids and actually adults who have uncomplicated community-acquired pneumonia to have a positive blood culture that is actually useful. And what is more common or equally as common, as I'll explain, is to have a contaminated blood culture, especially in kids. If you've ever tried to draw blood in a kid, they're not very cooperative or very still. And so you are more often or more likely to get something off their skin than you are to get uh, an uncontaminated blood culture. Uh, and we see that often. So the recommendations uh, are a little bit unhelpful in this way, and that they, many of them still recommend getting blood cultures. And this has actually been a point of big debate in both the adult and the pediatric literature about whether to get blood cultures in uncomplicated pneumonia. The reasons why it's been debated and the thought is that we should probably move away from this is, a, is a several fold. One is you mentioned that this kiddo is fully vaccinated, and that's actually really important because before we gave Hib for H flu, there were a lot of kids. H flu is a nasty organism, and there were a lot of kids that actually were bacteremic uh, in that setting, and so it was actually not uncommon to get a positive blood culture. But now that almost all kids are vaccinated, yay! It is really uncommon to have a kid that has a positive blood culture. And so if you think about the numbers for uh, if you cultured 100 kids, up to about three of them would have a contaminated blood culture, and less than three of them are likely to have a positive blood culture that actually grows the organism that's causing the pneumonia. Each of the labs can have about 3% contamination. And so especially in the ED and the outpatient setting where the risk of bacteremia is even lower, you're more likely to get a scenario where you keep a kid longer and give them uh, more antibiotics for no good reason. Is there ever a time when uh, blood culture then would be useful? There are a couple of times where actually they're really useful. So if you have a kid in the ICU 
who has sepsis, about 8% of those kids will grow uh, out of their cultures, which is really helpful, right? We all feel better if we know exactly the organism that's causing that sepsis. The other time it's really helpful, especially in pediatrics, is if you have a complicated pneumonia, so an effusion, because about 13 to 26% of those kids, the cultures will be positive. And actually, when because we often treat first before we drain, the cultures from the fluid are actually not positive as often as you would like. And in those cases, you can actually narrow the antibiotics often uh, by getting a blood culture of that culture grows. And obviously, if you have an immunocompromised kid who can grow kind of funny things, you should get a culture then. The 3% contamination rate, I assume that's kind of across the board in, in children that, or that's what a lab expectation is, is 3% contamination rate. Yeah, so each lab actually gets uh, measured by their blood contamination rate. I bet you guys uh, may not know that, but they actually measure labs uh, and their performance on their contamination rate. So many labs are less than 3%, but in kids, it tends to be a little bit higher because of the reasons we talked about, they're like squiggly and wiggly sure. and sometimes they draw off their IV. Um, so they tend to, they may ha they have risk to have the higher rates. Um, labs, there's been projects where labs have worked to get their contamination rate to about 1%. But the rate of bacteremia in kids who are in the ED is uh, two and a half percent or less, so not that much higher. And even in, in the inpatient setting, it's about one and a half to three and a half percent of kids who have simple community-acquired pneumonia who have bacteremia. So kind of close. And you said for sepsis, it's about eight percent, but then complicated pneumonia even higher. About thirteen percent will have positive blood cultures. That's right. So it actually, it can be up to about 25%. So 13 to 25%, oh, wow. really about and, 25%. And that's even better than the, the fluid collection if you were to do uh, uh, a chest tube or something. So the problem with the chest tubes is that you have a high false negative rate. So obviously, uh, those are caused by kids that, are, that have bacteria, but you often miss it when you do it. And some of that's because we try to treat through some of the um, sure. pneumonias. And you know, if you think about strep, um, it, it's hard to culture once you've started antibiotics. And and then you have those great New England Journal articles that looked at the causes of pneumonia in children, yeah. and especially the ones who are less than five, the vast, vast majority aren't bacterial in Virus. nature to, to begin with. So the likelihood that you're going to get a positive blood culture uh, from a kid who has a viral pneumonia that it's going to be useful is, uh, oh, should be almost never. Yeah, if we get a bacterial culture from a kid who has viral pneumonia, something went very wrong. Um, so it might be one of those 3% contaminated uh, ones. It's interesting, even in adults, actually, when they looked, uh, most pneumonias are caused by virus. And that is what I hope one day we actually have, is a, a more definitive test that can tell us viral versus bacterial. Um, because the CRP, as much as we love them, uh, and even the procalcitonin, which uh, we don't use, but a lot of institutions do, there's still a lot of concern that those don't really tell you viral versus bacterial. And if you looked at viral pneumonias over this last 10 months uh, versus bacterial. There's been a lot of viral pneumonia. There's been a lot of viral pneumonia. Yeah, though we do have a test for some of those. <laughs> we do. Though a lot of viral pneumonia is actually down, it looks like. The fluenza, influenza and bronchiolitis I saw, the rates of both of those are yeah. unbelievably low. Yeah, though um, in the Southern Hemisphere, they're seeing a, a big rebound of flu. And so there's a lot of concern that that, that flu wow. and RSV will rebound once uh, once we stop wearing our mask. But oh, I, think no. Ca I think Cashlack Baltimore hasn't had an RSV yeah. uh, infection yet this year. Oh, yeah, you totally jinxed it. That's like yeah. saying, that's like <laughs> someone pitching a no-hitter. Yeah, you, you, you got to talk to the pitcher. Yeah. <laughs> but, 
But uh, it is, it's such in a weird year, you know, so I, I talk to our residents all the time about how tough it's been in clinic and all those sorts of things with, um, with COVID this year. But just imagine being an intern in pediatrics this year and doing your winter months. And if you're not on at the right time, you might not see RSV yeah. or flu nice. over yeah. the winter as a pediatric intern. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. The only virus that's actually communally spreading right now is rhinovirus. And I did have on service two weeks ago, a kid with a rhinovirus, but that's the yeah. only virus that's actually spreading right now. It's only spreading in kids. Since we're talking about viruses, should, if we're not going to routinely be doing blood cultures for cows, should we be routinely doing respiratory viral panels? That's a great question. Uh, there's a lot of debate about that. If it will change your management, some folks will advocate. So like if you're going to get flu and you're going to actually treat, there's actually some debate about that. But if you're going to treat the flu, then it can be helpful. If it will make you stop antibiotics, then sometimes it will be helpful. Um, and if it changes, if you are in an institution that you still have semi-private rooms and it changes your isolation, sometimes that's a reason to do it. Um, but otherwise, like for example, in bronchiolitis, it's not necessarily helpful to to know and confirm that that's RSV versus some other lovely viral infection. Yeah, so Mike Rose, MedPeds PGY2 at Cashlack Baltimore, gave a great pediatric grand rounds warm up this week on just that topic, bringing it home sort of for evidence-based medicine and also made the point that if you are going to be sending the kid home early, not even to stopping antibiotics, but also sending them home while they might be still having fevers because you really do feel comfortable that this is a viral illness that you don't need to keep them in the hospital while they're still febrile. That can also save you a lot of money uh, on hospital days. So the, the take-home points that, that I, I think I'm walking away with is that the blood cultures, one, the contamination rate often is between one to 3%, which is around, if not higher, than the percent of bacteremia in an ED patient in general. And for a septic patient, that percentage goes up to about 8%, but then in complicated pneumonia, it goes up to about 13% to 25%. And so it's not really adding anything because we know the most common cause of pneumonia is viral pneumonia and maybe second strep pneumo, but especially in immunized patients that are uh, immunocompetent, no real reason for blood cultures and community-acquired pneumonia. And remember, this is for the three months and older. If you say that Hertzke said don't get a blood culture in a less than three-month-old, uh, I will deny it because that's not true. Piggybacking off of Carrie's point, the Choosing Wisely for Pete's Hospital Medicine came out with their top five this yeah. week, one of which was don't give extended-spectrum penicillin drugs, give ampicillin uh, for kids with community-acquired pneumonia. Don't give ceftriaxone, things like that. Uh, don't give ampicillin. Just give ampicillin, uh, again, because this the sort of the same reason it's not going to help if you find it in the blood culture. Almost all of the bacteria is going to be sensitive to that ampicillin, uh, which is why the, the blood culture is not going to change your management, unless, of course, it is one of those kids with complicated uh, pneumonias or immunodeficiency where it actually may uh, change your management. That's right. We actually learned in the recent community-acquired pneumonia episode that we did with Dr. Susan Lipset that ampicillin actually has better coverage for uh, strep pneumo than ceftriaxone yeah. or the cephalosporins, which... Better, better lung penetration. That's why they recommend it. That's why I keep trying to convince people. It's like, it actually gets in the lungs where the wow. infection is better than the, than the ceftriaxone that we all love. Things we do for good reason. Ampicillin. That is the thing we do for good reason. 
There you yeah. go. There you go. Yeah, ampicillin. All right. So case two, a five-year-old boy is admitted to the hospital for a bowel cleanout after presenting with abdominal pain and having abdominal x-ray that demonstrated a, quote, moderate stool burden, end quote. After ingestion of the bowel prep, he develops worsening abdominal cramping and diarrhea. Upon receiving, uh, reviewing the bowel history with his mother afterward, the team learns that he has had a bowel movement every day for every one to two days as usual and has been having soft stools without any straining pain or blood present so um i guess we got an x-ray here why might someone actually think it's useful to do oh this is such a fun topic um first of all because i get to talk about poop so uh <laughs> why why is when we think it's useful because everybody thinks it's useful right you've how many times have you looked at an x-ray and gone oh look at all that stool in there they, right. they are fos come on look at all that stool they must have constipation right you just you, you see it and you feel like you know what the diagnosis is. So there's sort of this face validity to it. And then if you look at the literature out there, there are many gastroenterologists. One study uh, in 2017 asked like 24 gastroenterologists about their use of abdominal x-rays and constipation. And 70% of them said they would get an x-ray to look for stool burden. So we're learning to do this, right? The, if the gastroenterologist, if the pediatric gastroenterologists say it's useful, they're teaching that to all of us. All of us did this in residency. I certainly did it in residency. So we're learning to do it and there's face validity to do it. So why wouldn't you do it, Chris? So can someone have moderate stool burden if they're having normal bowel movements? Uh, so, <laughs> yes, the answer is absolutely. Um, those x-rays are just sort of one shot in time. Obviously, it's not uh, some functional shot. You're just getting one picture. And so what your bowel looks like at that one moment happens to be what your bowel looks like at that one moment. And certainly at that moment, maybe you do need to go to the bathroom, but it doesn't mean you're constipated because constipation is a clinical syndrome. It is not an x-ray diagnosis. Yeah, I, I guess, Lenny, but, uh, you know, an x-ray is not that invasive. What harms could possibly come from just doing this routine and getting another data point? All right. Well, so first of all, you would need to know that doing the x-ray actually helps with your management, right? If you had a study that showed you that x-rays could tell you that the patient is constipated and then you could act upon that, that would be really useful. But the studies that have been done, uh, and there's systematic reviews on this that say it's not helpful. There was also one study, which I have to talk about, because you get to talk about all these different scores that they did. Uh, there was a study in 2010 by Penabine. I hope I'm pronouncing that correct, uh, where they looked at a bunch of different scores. There's a leech score. There's a bar score. There's a fecal loading score. Um, and when they did those, when they looked at those three different types of uh, scores, they then wanted to see, well, does that actually discriminate between a child who has constipation or who a child who has non-retentive fecal incontinence? So if you have non-retentive fecal incontinence, you're still pooing um, and getting stool in your underwear, but you're not full of stool. You're not backed up. You're just not um, able to keep the stool in until you go to the bathroom. So they did these, the study where they looked at x-rays of all these different kids uh, to try to be able to tell the difference between the one who's full of stool and the one who's just having incontinence. And basically, they couldn't tell the difference when they looked at these x-rays. So the, the bottom line is it's a waste of your money 
to get an x-ray because it's not going to tell you what you want to find out. And then there are all these other reasons that you might not want to do it. One is it's an x-ray. So your child is being irradiated for no reason. We don't think that's healthy for anybody. One x-ray is not going to kill anybody, most likely. But many of these kids with constipation get x-ray after x-ray after x-ray after x-ray. The other issue is uh, that's probably bigger is that sometimes when you get that x-ray that shows the kid is full of stool, then you say, oh, that must be constipation. And you close your mind, sort of premature closure, anchoring to any other diagnosis that it might be. And so they've looked at studies where they've, kids have had the diagnosis of constipation and then seen if they come back with other important diagnoses. Uh, and the bottom line is very, very, very infrequently do children after a diagnosis of constipation come back with other diagnoses. But it turns out that if they get an x-ray, they are more likely to come back with an important other diagnosis than if they didn't get the x-ray. So those are kids who ended up coming back with uh, things like pneumonia. Most often it was something like appendicitis, you know, these important diagnoses that if you aren't thinking about it and you just say, hey, well, look at all the stool, it must be constipation you could be missing the really important diagnosis that could actually impact this child's long-term health and, and short-term health. And then certainly uh, the final thing in all of this is you, give, you uh, will treat them with medications that they might not need either and make them have diarrhea and all sorts of uncomfortable issues uh, when they don't really have constipation. Yeah. Oh, and I, I forgot to add uh, um, that if you get the abdominal x-ray in the ED and it's full of stool, you are actually also more likely to admit that child. So don't do it because it costs money. Don't do it because it irradiates. Don't do it because you might miss the uh, actual right diagnosis and you might anchor on the wrong one. And don't do it because your management is potentially causing harm to the child. If I can't do an x-ray, what, what should I do? Do I actually need to put hands on these patients? I mean... Uh, I would never advocate doing a physical exam. Yes, of course, you should do uh, a history and, uh, and physical with the child. There are people who... Lots of debate about whether you should do a digital rectal exam on the kids who you make a diagnosis of constipation looking for impaction um, in uh, the rectum. Uh, the jury's still out on that. But you absolutely should be doing a physical exam. And I think as importantly is the history and do they fulfill that Rome 4 criteria that uh, now helps us, at least for research purposes, make a diagnosis of constipation. Like the blood cultures in immunocompromised individuals, are there exceptions to the rule? Are there times when an X-ray can uh, help guide some information if a history can't be taken or if a physical is difficult? Are there other any times that you would do an abdominal x-ray for constipation? All right. So I would not do an x-ray to diagnose constipation or to evaluate whether you have cleaned the child out properly. Neither of those reasons. I would do, there are times certainly to do an x-ray with a child who comes in with abdominal pain and you are trying to figure out why they have abdominal pain. Now, you shouldn't be doing that x-ray to see if they have constipation that is causing that abdominal pain. You are doing that x-ray because, I don't know, the kid has a history of surgery, and you're worried that they have adhesions and that they're obstructed, and you want to look for that. Or they have bilious emesis, and you're like, oh my God, 
is is there some other obstruction going on that's giving bilious emesis and I can do an, an X-ray really quickly for that? Uh, so it's to make the diagnosis of what's causing the abdominal pain, not ever to make the diagnosis of constipation. And a bunch of societies say, pediatric gastroenterology societies, and one of the Let's see, the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition say we shouldn't do it, and the European Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition say we should not be doing these x-rays. So it's not just me uh, and things we do for no reason. It is actually societies as well. It is a challenge because you will see uh, GI will often want uh, before and after they've cleaned out. Uh, I would like to know the number of times that a child has clear uh, poo and then has uh, stool on their x-ray. Yeah. You have given me a diagnosis I'm going to add to the things to avoid, which is the non-retentive fecal incontinence. I'm going to add that to my long list of conditions that I would like to avoid ever again. And there are... There, I don't know. You know, there were people who like to do the x-ray to be able to show the parents. I, I'm not sure that's a good reason to irradiate your child, to be able to show them that your kid is full of stool. It's by history. Because constipation is a clinical syndrome. It is not an x-ray. And you may look, and I've had patients where I've done the x-ray for whatever reason, and there was a bunch of stool. Uh, and then the next day you do an x-ray, not that you weren't treating for constipation, anything like that, but you got another x-ray because they were having worse abdominal pain. And now all that stool is gone. And you've, I think many of us have had that experience. Uh, it, it's one shot in time. What do you, what do you think happened between those two x-rays? <laughs> <laughs> Great. So I think to, to for me to summarize my take-home points, because that's my goal from the show is to, to come up with my own take-home points. Um, the abdominal x-ray is not good at telling us if a patient is constipated, a clinical diagnosis. Uh, we can have a wide variety of stool burden in an x-ray, but that does not mean that they're having trouble pooping and that that is the cause of their abdominal pain. And more so that there are significant harms to the X-ray, not only the radiation, but the anchoring bias, the giving unnecessary medications that might help move things along unnecessarily, and the money, the money, money. It's not huge. It's not huge, but there's money involved. And you're talking about like 280,000 visits a year for constipation to the ED, and and then all the other ones who go to their primary care doctors. Right? This is not a small number of children. <laughs> who are showing up with constipation. Okay, let's let's head into case number three. We have an eight-year-old, previously healthy girl named Nicolette, who's seen in the emergency room for a rapidly worsening redness, warmth, and swelling of her left lower leg. Uh, she did not have any draining fluid or any collection. As an outpatient a couple days prior, the pediatrician had prescribed doxycycline to cover MRSA. The patient took about three doses of this medication, but is still experiencing worsening pain and swelling. In the emerging department, she has normal vital signs for her age, except for a temperature of 100.8, so she is febrile, and the area is warm and tender. The patient was referred for admission due to failing outpatient therapy, and the ED providers ordered a blood culture at the time of admission, and the patient was started on IV vancomycin to better the MRSA coverage. So we have a patient who has pretty straightforward non-purulent cellulitis. And uh, I think the first question is kind of what guides our antibiotic decisions? How, how do we treat this patient in a, in a responsible way? 
So you've mentioned a, a, one of the big ones. So uh, there's a couple of things I think about. One is making sure that it is cellulitis. Cellulitis is a um, sometimes misdiagnosed condition. And then making sure it's not one of those serious things. So if you told me she had, uh, she was incredibly uncomfortable, uh, I would worry about more serious things like uh, necrotizing fasciitis, which we do see in children actually and can be, and I've seen a couple of cases get missed. But in this case, it does sound like this is, to your point, non-purulent cellulitis. And I think one of the things people miss is distinguishing purulent cellulitis from non-purulent cellulitis. One of the challenges is that the cellulitis that's purulent, you can culture, uh, not by blood. We'll talk about that, I bet. Um, but by you can culture the purulence and get an organism opt-in. But in non-purulent cellulitis, you there's nothing to culture. So for a long time, the data that there's been several big studies on cellulitis, but it was based on cultural of the wound. So it was really looking at purulent cellulitis. When we uh, have done further studies looking at non-purulent cellulitis, you can't culture anything except the blood, which we'll talk about. Um, and so what you, the best thing to do is to think about the organisms. And we think that this is probably a strep. And strep are pretty pan-sensitive, the type that cause cellulitis. And so what people have done is they have treated patients with non-purulent cellulitis with only um, drugs that don't treat MRSA. And mo the mass majority, over 95% of patients in those cases have gotten better. So what I think about is, is it purulent or non-purulent? Because for me, if it's purulent, that takes me down the MRSA and the MSSA. And I almost always treat for MRSA in those cases because it's so commonly MRSA. If it's non-purulent and the kiddo doesn't have any of the scary things, then I feel much more comfortable treating for, for non-purulent or strep. And the reason this matters and the reason this kid almost certainly failed antibiotics is because drugs like doxycycline and Bactrim that go towards uh, MRSA actually don't have activity towards strep. So that's why this kid likely failed. Um, and it can be something that folks can miss actually thinking that they're doing the right thing by treating for MRSA. So what should we be using then for first line? Yeah. So for non-purulent, um, straightforward cellulitis in an immunocompetent kiddo or adult, actually, this is a case where they're pretty similar. There's one guideline by IDSA that you can um, apply to kids and adults. You want to uh, use one of the cephalosporins often. So a cephalexin uh, oral option. Um, and if they need to come into the hospital, you can use cefazolin as well, which is the IV form. The other thing is that people often overtreat. So five days of therapy is way plenty for uncomplicated cellulitis. You don't need 10. And I still see um, folks getting 10 days. And your cephalexin can be TID, does not need to be QID. Yeah, because I think QID drugs should be banned from the face of earth because we all know you're not getting four drugs in anybody. So it sounds like for, for non-purulent cellulitis, we can use a oral cephalosporin just for covering strep pneumo. And then you mentioned for more broad spectrum, we can use for MRSA. Yeah, you can what use too, but you need to know your sensitivities if you have MRSA, because in many areas, clindamycin is only about 60% effective. And so that's 40% of patients who will have a resistant organism. So you, this is a case where you really need to know your local antibiotic gram. And remember, you need a PEDS-specific one because they're different between PEDS and adults in most hospitals. And, and let me just add, Justin, you said cephalexin for strep, but it also covers staph, MSSA, yeah, MSSA. really well. Yep. Uh, um, and so you're, you're getting both of those uh, with, with cephalexin. So everything's a mono coverage. Do you ever, do you ever use two, two antibiotics? 
Yeah. So in, in kids, uh, it's important to understand the history. So things like animal bites, uh, including human, we're all, you know, in the house together. So if big brother uh, gets bitten by little brother, those you would want to treat with a different agent. So Augmentin is often the drug that we use for animal bites, including humans. Other things that you need to know about. So things obtained from water, uh, we, we would worry about, especially in immunocompromised hosts, Vibrio. Uh, those, they often will have bulla. So if you see a patient whose cellulitis looks particularly bad, and especially with blistering, then you would think, and especially in the history of having been in the water, you would want to treat for Vibrio. And that's a very different, uh, much more broad spectrum approach. And then obviously, if you're concerned about necrotizing fasciitis, which again is a history where skin may not be that impressive, but a kid looks miserable, then you would want to treat with broad spectrum antibiotics in those cases. And that is also uh, accompanied by a surgery consultation, because in those cases, that's actually a surgical treatment uh, in addition to antibiotics. And the kids who are immunocompromised, so uh, oncology kids can grow Klebsiella and a number of other more um, common bacteria as a result of their cellulitis because of their severe immunocompromise. Carrie, if if you had a kid who does have pus coming from the lesion and you haven't gotten the culture yet, uh, would you do Bactrim and then add in like amoxicillin to cover the strep? So double cover in that way? I, um, for pus, I actually feel pretty confident that it, for purulent disease, that it's almost certainly staph. And so I often don't double, double cover. That is one case where it is helpful to culture, uh, but, uh, culturing the skin in, in non-purulent cellulitis is completely useless. So don't do that. At one time, at one point I was taught that people would do these leading edge cultures where they they would take like a tuberculin syringe and put it in the leading edge of a non-purulent huh. cellulitis to see if they would culture. And the what the teaching point that I had heard, and I don't know if this is true, is that it's not the leading edge where you are most likely to find the bacteria in these non-purulent cellulitis. And I'm probably just adding to the rumor mill, but that you should go for the point of maximal inflammation in those situations uh, and, and actually stick the tuberculin needle with a little bit of saline into that maximal inflamed area, and then you might get something. But uh, all of that sounds like it's very low yield. How do you you identify the... (laughs) They point to it. (laughs) Yeah. Is that just where it's like most tender? You know it when you see it. (laughs) The other part is you could just see what you think the organism is. And if they don't get better, you could then in two days broaden the antibiotics. Remember that cellulitis can actually get a little bit worse at first because when you um, have effective uh, antibiotics, you can actually, with the inflammation from the organisms uh, as they die off, it can get a little bit worse actually before it gets better. So that's the other thing to note. And I am uh, not advocating anybody do these uh, cultures. Of, I do recommend or, that approach. Yeah. Of leading edges or maximal inflammation. The other thing is that if you have a lower extremity, you want to raise that actually, because the raising that extremity is actually as important as antibiotics. And so in little kids, it's very hard to do that. But if you have a bit like an eight-year-old who can cooperate, you want to, and it's a leg, you want to lift that leg up to, because that actually has been shown to be as important as the antibiotics. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I had a That's patient, a I had a patient when I was in uh, med school, I was, doing an ID elective. And it was before we had electronic medical records. So I'd been seeing this guy in the VA for a few days 
and his cellulitis was in, on his leg was getting better every day. And then I finally went to the MAR uh, to see what medicines he was on and noticed that he had not gotten any antibiotics the entire time he was in the hospital. But his leg was getting better because he right. had it elevated. Yeah, the elevation is actually a really big deal. I mean, cool. so I, I've worked in I've worked in hospitals before I got to Cashlack, where um, you know you can you could order a trapeze and just have people like raise the extremity in their hospital room. Although at, where I work now, I I've tried this multiple times and no one can ever get it for mm. me. So it's like, all right, then four pillows, yeah, five pillows. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One thing, Kara, you did mention in some of these other cases where it can be Vibrio, where it could be. MSSA or MRSA or other bacteria that could potentially cause it in these unique areas. What about using blood cultures to kind of help identify the pathogen in either purulent or non-purulent cellulitis? Oh, the blood cultures. So you'll remember we talked earlier about uh, the magic of Hib, the uh, our vaccination, and this is another uh, exact same story actually. So. Before we were vaccinating uh, using Hib for H flu, we saw a number of kids actually that would have cellulitis caused by H flu, and those kids were often bacteremic, uh, so at very high rates actually, greater than ten percent in some studies. Now that kids are mostly vaccinated, uh, yay, we see much less bacteremia, and this is the exact same story that we just heard actually uh, about pneumonia. So the rates of positivity for uncomplicated cellulitis are even lower than the rates of bacteremia in community-acquired pneumonia. The difference is that actually in these cases, it will sometimes change your management, but it's so uncommon that we really don't recommend doing a blood culture. So the rates of uh, positive blood cultures in immunocompetent kids with straightforward purulent or non-purulent cellulitis is somewhere between 0.4, 0.4 and 2.9%. So very low rates of bacteremia in these kids. I think one of the most satisfying things is to get pus out yeah. that you can culture. That you should culture. If you have purulent cellulitis, you should try to culture that. And remember that um, even if you are able to drain the abscess, there are good studies showing that um, five days of antibiotics, and though even if the abscess is small, does uh, decrease relapse. And so those kids I do treat, even if there's an abscess that I can be able to drain. But I don't blood culture them. And remember that when you get that pus out of that boil, that you should wear some sort of protective eye gear when when you do it, because I am well known at Cash Lack Baltimore for having uh, Is that your failures, Lenny. Failure to wear eyewear. <laughs> yes, and, yeah. and and the pus went straight from the child into Oof. my eye. Uh, so I would recommend eyewear. Uh, good tip. What? Um, <laughs> how can cultures negatively affect inpatient care? So it sounds like they're not super helpful because of the contamination rate, but is there anything harmful in doing this? Uh, yes, as you can imagine. So not only have you tortured that poor uh, innocent child, but it's expensive and can cause increased length of stay. So there, uh, and it's not, it's not a small cost. So it's somewhere between eight and $11,000 for each contaminated blood culture. Uh, and that does not uh, necessarily account for the increased length of stay. So if you get a blood culture and then you uh, increase the antibiotics, there are harms to that too. And the cost of the blood culture itself is uh, not insignificant. Uh, in one, a difference of reducing uh, blood culture positivity contamination by uh, 1% in one hospital, uh, save that hospital $50,000 a month, a month in just in the peds uh, center. So 
the blood culture itself costs money, plus the sensitivities for, for contamination when they figure those out and the cost of the length of stay. And then, of course, if you give a kid vincomycin that doesn't need vincomycin, you increase antibiotic resistance and increase the risk of C. diff. And C. diff, not such a kind gift. That's not that's that's $10,000. $10,000 of contaminant is nuts. That's uh, five, six contaminants as a resident. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. Because you think about calorie. it, uh, increase antibiotics, uh, often you increase the length of stay for those folks that have a positive blood culture because yeah. people get neuromycin. I remember one session in residency, we had someone that came uh, in an ED out of blood culture. It was clearly contaminant. Four days later, came back, and we admitted them overnight to be watched. It was early on in intern year, and I was like, really? Like, okay. Yeah. And now in retrospect, things we do for no reason. That was yeah, definitely. Like lots of unintended consequences there. Yeah. So on Twitter the other day, Adam Rodman had a nice question. I'm going to paraphrase for our, our case. So with, with this kid who was admitted with cellulitis... Do you put a stethoscope on their chest and listen to their lungs? I personally would because because uh, I've never admitted a child without listening to their lungs. Do you ever put the stethoscope on the cellulitis just to see if <laughs> it rumbles? No, yeah. but you know the thing that people do like to do is they love to ultrasound uh, to see if there's an abscess. And I have seen a couple ultrasounds that have been negative and clinically there's clearly an abscess. So I would love to think about uh, whether things we do for no reason is ultrasound these, because I think getting an ultrasound for purulent cellulitis, where you can clearly tell an exam or pretty much tell an exam, is a thing that we do for no reason. And we often are forced to get them um, so that when we uh, call our surgical friends in to do drainage, because you know for little kids, we often take them to the OR. Uh, and that's probably another thing we do for no reason. Well, I think the uh, corollary to that is getting the ultrasound for the patient who clearly has non-purulent cellulitis that people are like, well, let's just make sure that we're not missing. And uh, you just aren't, you aren't missing it. And uh, I, I would say that similarly, if it's on the leg, people doing the Dopplers to look for DVT as a cause of this, which uh, almost never is as well. Although... If I if I carry my point of care ultrasound around and I just like I'm listening to someone's lungs because I routinely do it when they come in with cellulitis and I, I look at this and I it's like I sort of want to see like how big this this purulent pocket might be I mean and ultrasound it's if I'm just using it and I'm not technically billing a patient for that and there's no radiation involved I think you know there the risk benefit ratio is pretty good on that make sure you clean it real well <laughs> true. All right. So I to, to kind of summarize our case on the cellulitis, what I'm taking away from this is that one big distinction is purulence versus non-purulence. For simple non-purulent cellulitis, we can use cephalexin, which is going to cover both strep and MSSA pretty well. If there's purulence, that's when we start thinking about uh, more staff, including MRSA, and then would want to have a uh, MRSA covering antibiotic, likely based on local sensitivities. There's bad side effects with over-treatment, including covering for MRSA um, early on, because if it's non-purulent, you're not going to get as good coverage, but you can also get bad side effects, including like the C. diff example with, with vancomycin and, and clindamycin. The blood cultures uh, do not help, again, because the rate of Getting a helpful blood culture is less than the rate of contamination at most places and therefore are really unnecessary. And 
those are the big things that I'm taking away with what I missed. Yeah. And then it's important to know when you should think about other things that are not simple cellulitis, because that's where I've also seen people mess up. Um, so think about how they got their cellulitis, right? So if they were in water, if it's an animal bite, we would want to use a different agent. Um, and if the kid uh, looks more miserable than they should based on exam, you want to think about that too. Um, and so I think thinking about making sure that, that you don't miss something else is, is as important too. And please outline the cellulitis. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's my pet. Good one. I hear you. That's a good one. Ugh. And date it. I feel like th these, like all things we do for no reason episodes, came away with a lot of very easy to implement pearls that I think everyone will appreciate. Attendings, residents, and definitely med students that want to sound smarter than their team. Overall, are there other big picture items or small details, takeaway points that uh, you guys want to make sure our listeners go away with? I think it's, uh, when we think about it, I think it's always important to think about the patient in front of you. There are um, things we do for no reason, both sides, right? So sometimes we underdo things and we often overdo things. And so I think always thinking about the patient in front of you and, and customizing your approach to that patient, sort of like we talked today, uh, is always important in medicine. And I think the other thing is it's really easy, especially in Lenny's example, to let local practice patterns really influence your practice. And sometimes that's really helpful, but that's how uh, these things we do for no reason get uh, repeated over and over again. Um, and so I think uh, hopefully these kind of episodes will help you think about the things you're doing every day in practice and figure out which of them are evidence-based or best practice and which of them you should take a look at and think about whether there's something you should really be doing or doing something different. Yeah. Question, question the things that you do every day by rote, because those end up oftentimes being things we do for no reason. And if you want more great examples of things we do for no reason, uh, I, just a shout out to the Journal of Hospital Medicine that houses our column of things we do for no reason, which includes lots of adults and pediatric topics and is edited by myself and Tony Brew. And we have Elise Liu, who's now working with us. And want to thank all of, for all of these topics that we talked about today, they were all first written up in Things We Do For No Reason columns by fabulous authors. Uh, so I'm not going to name all of the authors, but thank you to all of the authors for all of the hard work you do uh, in putting these articles together. And how about you, Dr. Hersey? Anything that you want to plug or anything that you want to send our listeners to to check out? I love Lenny's Things We Do For No Reason. Uh, I also like the New England Journal has a brief actually for residents and fellows and they and they customize them actually for if you're a pediatrician. Um, and so if you're able to subscribe to those, they send you the table of contents and they send them once a week. And it's a good way to um, keep up on the, on the literature and also to sound smart for those of you that might uh, be learners uh, as you round. I use that too. Excellent. I love that. It's a great service that New England Journal of Medicine has. And can I, can I also add in that Justin Burke, one of our authors for Things We Do For No Reason, uh, along with some of the other authors, are now putting slide decks together of these Things We Do For No Reason so that you can use them to teach on the wards, uh, whether you're a resident teaching med students or attending teaching everyone else or med students fourth years teaching med student third years. You can use these slide decks to teach about many of these things we do for no reason. That's a great idea. Ours were put together by Jess Kelly, a producer on the show. So we'll just do, a, we'll keep doing shout outs. This was wonderful. I think I learned a lot. I think people are going to really like this. It's going to be 
um, uh, a very popular episode. Thank you both for taking the time to spend with us and to help teach us how to be better clinicians. Always a pleasure to hang out with you guys. It's awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, pleasure's all ours. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes at thecribsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list called Knowledge Food Formula Feeds to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. You can also contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. Send us an email anytime. A special thanks to our wonderful producer for this episode, Dr. Nicholas Lee. Thank you for joining us tonight. I've been Justin Lee Burke. And I've been Nick Lee. And this has been Chris the Chew Man Chew. Thank you. Good night. Peace. Peace.